All right, we are in Galatians. So turn to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 6 through 10. All right, anybody, anybody here remember the word processing uh, program called Word Star? Ah, John, you remember? Jeff? Very good. I was wondering how many. This is the first word processing program in the technological computer age. One of the first. Uh, it had no pull-down menus. Can you imagine that? You actually had to memorize keynotes in order to make it work. Gosh, I'd be lost. Uh, the tutorial program on WordStar featured this little man, and he would appear on your screen, and he was a smiling little man, and he'd be waving, and he'd say this. I bet you think if you do the wrong thing, hit the wrong key, or make a mistake, you could blow up this computer. Then the next screen showed the same little man there smiling away, and he said, go ahead, hit any key and see what happens. (laughs) Oh, this is awesome. So you hit a key, and this gigantic explosion glows on your screen. You just ruined your computer. Now, and then this little guy shows up with his smirky little smile, and he says, just kidding. Right? I think, I think most of us in this room and outside these doors live our life in fear of doing the wrong thing. I think most of us, and I'm willing to bet on it, most of us in this room and outside these doors in Waco and beyond are afraid of making a mistake, are worried about blowing up your life. Blowing up your relationship with God. Ruining your marriage. Ruining your kids. Right? Ruining your career. Ruining your future. Making a mistake. Failing. And being ashamed. Right? Uh, Pop legend. That theologian Madonna was interviewed in Vanity Fair. And she said... I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. Watch this. If this doesn't show you the drive behind how she remade herself every five years, I don't know what does. But listen. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. So she's okay for a while. But then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and I'm uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. And I know for most of us in that room, you feel the exact same way. Whether you're a student, whether you're a mom, whether you're a a Bible study leader, whether you're an elder, whether you're a deacon. Most of us, if not all of us in this room, have a horrible fear of being mediocre, of being unsuccessful, of not being great. The top of your field, whatever it is, at least one of the top. Those that at least are in that inside group, as C.S. Lewis talks about. Nobody in this room wants to be invisible. 
Nobody in this room wants to be the invisible man, right? Everyone, every single person in this room wants to be somebody. If Paul was to talk to us right now, if he was to come up, if he was writing like he did, he would say this. He would say, listen, all you Christians in Galatia, every single person from the history of the world, from Adam to the last person, every single person in this room longs to be justified. So welcome. Welcome to Galatians. Man, I love this book. Why? Because in Galatians, you become visible. You become somebody. You become justified. What a great, great book. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Galatians 1. It's in your bulletin too if you want to follow along there. We're using the English Standard Text. You know, the real approved version. <clears throat> I'm a Galatian. <laughs> All right, Galatians 1, 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. Now, that, that word in it should say in in your translation. That is a preposition that's telling you you're in this sphere. You're in this kingdom. You're in this realm. That's one who's called you in this whole other world of the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But listen, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I've said before, I'm going to say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For, I am, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. All right, let's pray. Great God, thank you. Thank you for this book. Thank you that you love us more than we can comprehend. And as someone said last week, your love chases us down. Oh God, we thank you that you chase us down. While we're running full speed away from you. So, oh Lord... Would you crack open that deep place within us that's full of anxiety and fear of making a mistake, of being a failure, of being invisible, of not being somebody? And would you teach us the salvation that comes by great grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, in Antioch of Pisidia, there's a couple of them. There's an Antioch that was on just north of Jerusalem. This Antioch is on the other side of the Mediterranean in modern-day Turkey. 
the region of Galatia. In Antioch of Pisidia, Paul and Barnabas walked into a Jewish synagogue. you got to love this. You read this in Acts chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14. They walk into this synagogue. That would be on the Saturday. So on a normal sunny Saturday, these two walk into a synagogue. And because of his credentials as a high-ranking legal law person, Pharisee, Paul's able to preach. So he preaches. And as he's preaching, he starts preaching the highlights of the Old Testament heroes. And he's preaching and weaving the story of these Old Testament heroes. He starts leading them from the shadow of a hero to the substance of a hero. So he uses words like, whom God raised up, these redemptive agents. And he keeps following us through, following these folks through these Old Testament redemptive agents until he gets to the one who was raised up, the only resurrected one. And he goes on through this story from the beginning of the history of redemption on to its fulfillment in Jesus rising from the dead, right? Now, when this happens, he's done. So what happens when he's done? All the words are unbelievable. Here's the picture. They begged him to continue. Paul, please don't stop. Well, he had to eat. He had other things to do. He had to move on. So he does. But the word starts moving out through the city of Antioch. The next Sabbath, the text says, the whole city is there. Begging Paul to tell the story of great grace again. So he does. You know what the text says? A supernatural revival sweeps the city. He moves on. In the city of Iconium in the region of Galatia, Paul and Barnabas again walk into a synagogue and Paul starts preaching. What happens? As he starts preaching, the text says in Acts 14, a great number of Jews and Gentiles believe. Another extraordinary outpouring of God's spirit, the grace of God moving in people's lives in a very personal, impactful, powerful way. And people start hungering and being gripped by the grace of God. Revival breaks out. The whole city. Paul moves on. He goes to Lystra, Lystra in the region of Galatia. And what is he doing? He's preaching again. And while he's preaching, he sees this crippled man listening to him. And in the midst of talking about a message of great grace, he has great compassion on this crippled man as he's listening to him. And in the midst of his sermon, he stops and heals him by the same power of God's grace. What happens? Well, the multitudes see this happen. And this is what they do. And you've got to love the Greeks. Remember the Greeks. Remember your Greek pantheon of gods. Remember, here's what they say. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And they start coming up to Paul and Barnabas and start worshiping them. Can you imagine seeing the look on Paul's face? He's absolutely appalled. But there's a lot of truth in what they said. It's not God's plural that's come down to us in the likeness of men. But God did. A great revival breaks out in the city. One church historian said, city after city in Galatia is gripped by great grace. And this guy says, scholar, it's one of the most successful missionary journeys in the history of Christianity. 
I mean, it was all over Christianity today. Everywhere. The first explosion of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Now, Paul returns home from his church planning trip to Galatia. He's still finishing his laundry. You know, he's, he's paying his bills. He's, he's going through his stack of mail. It's been a long time since he's been away. Long trip. But as he does so, he can't stop smiling because he keeps seeing these faces. He keeps seeing these faces of new sons and daughters of the king. He keeps seeing these faces of, of folks that he has come to dearly love. So he just breaks out and smiles. He goes through his work. Now, we're not told how, but, but soon after Paul gets home, he receives some bad news. He can't believe his ears. His heart sinks. And he quickly grabs a parchment. He grabs a pen. And if he had email, look out. And he fires off verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is a gospel. If Paul was a Texan, he'd say, Hey, dude, it's time to finish this conversation outside. He's ripped. He is absolutely ripped. The word astonishing in the original language means to be extraordinarily disturbed by something. In other words, he's extraordinarily stunned. He's extraordinarily shocked. He's extraordinarily outraged at what's happening. Now, you got to ask yourself, why is he so extraordinarily shocked and stunned and outraged? What's bothering him so much? And we can clear up a couple of things right from the beginning. Those of us that are familiar with his letters to Galatians, I mean to Corinthians, we can, we can stack on those. But as we look at the text and we go through the text, we can see that he's not shocked at some bad behavior in the Galatians. There's not some sex scandal running through the churches and he's just like, good night. That's not doing it. It's also not like he's heard rumors of some people cussing and drinking alcohol. That's not doing it. It's also that he's not alarmed because he starts hearing that contemporary Christian music is coming to the worship service. People are smiling in the worship service. Holy mackerel, give me the pen. That's not what he's doing. It's also that he's not stunned by the political views and that, that the church officer's children are going to public schools. There's none of that going on here. You guys laugh. <laughs> you just you just listen to my email for a week. All right. Paul is greatly disturbed because those who he loves dearly are walking away from hope. They're walking away from cosmic approval. They are deserting grace. And he can't believe it. It's those same folks he preached to. And he just got home. 
And they so quickly, quickly deserted him. The word desertion in verse 6 is a military term. It's used for traitors. It's used for turncoats. Again, man, he, he's like, let's go to the woodshed, folks. He'd bother most of us today if he was preaching. To desert literally means to change your heart's allegiance, to change your heart's trust, to change your heart's deepest hope from something to something else. That's why we go on in verse 6, it says you're turning to a different gospel. What he's saying to them, look, you're changing your heart's hope to another gospel. You're changing your heart's deepest sense for approval to another gospel. You're changing your longing for cosmic life and happiness to another gospel. You see what's happening? You're deserting him is what he's saying. That's how he summarizes the phrase. Now, do you feel the power in what Paul's saying here? It is all over the page. He is saying there are different gospels out there. Do you see that? The power in what Paul is saying, he's saying, brothers and sisters, please understand. There are different gospels out there. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 7, it's not that he's saying there are dis- different gospels out there and they're real. Like there are different gospels out there and they really can forgive you. There are different gospels out there and it really can give you cosmic approval. These gospels can make you somebody. They can justify you, make you a justified person. He's not saying that. That's why he says, look, they're not gospels. But what he is saying is there are different gospels out there though they can't deliver the goods, though they promise to deliver the goods. And if you don't trust in the real gospel, you're going to trust in a different gospel. That's his point. Andrew Carnegie, at the age of 33, was already well on his way to being the most successful and wealthiest man on the planet. In Pittsburgh, he started a steel company, which became the future, what, U.S. Steel Company? He founded it in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This steel company became the most successful enterprise on the planet. While he's in the midst of his rise, while he is being ranked as the wealthiest, while he is on his way to the most successful man on the planet, this is what he says. Are you ready? Unbelievable. Man must have an idol. Man must have an idol. And that's what Paul is saying here. That's the power behind what he's saying here. Carnegie knew by his personal experience because he knew his own heart. When you follow his life, you're like, he is incredibly self-aware. And yet it didn't do much for him. And he's dealt with all kinds of people. He's done, dealt with the ultra-successful people down to the most desperate that worked in his steel mills. He's seen them all. He's watched. He's seen human lives in all kinds of situations. And what he ends up doing is he ends up saying what the Bible says on every page, and it's this. You must trust something to save you. That's the power in this passage. You and I must trust something to save us to give us cosmic approval, 
meaning, forgiveness, life. Why? It's very, very simple. Because God made you for himself. One writer says you have a God-shaped hole in your soul. And so you can, you can do this. You and I do this. We can, we can have different gospels. We can have different saviors. We can have different approvals. We can have different hopes. We can have different longings for cosmic meaning. We can have that. We can shuffle the deck. We can, we can move it from uh, money and career to our family. We can move it from an addiction to alcohol to an addiction to personal discipline. We can move it from the power and control over people to saying, no, I don't want power and control over people. I want to be liked by people. We can move the pieces. We can do that all the time, but we can't change the divine design of your soul. You got a hole in your soul for God. You can't change the longing, the need, the drive for God. But you can change what you look to to be your good news. Okay? So here's the point. Let's get to it. In Galatians 6 through 10, chapter 1, the point is this. He's writing to the Galatian churches to warn them and win them Back to the real gospel. That's what he's doing. So his real point is very, very simple. In order to win them back to the gospel, to warn them, to win them, he says this very simple point. Here it is. There's no other gospel. There is no other gospel. He is saying, where else, Galatians, are you going to go? No other gospel will forgive you No other gospel will give you happiness and hope. No other gospel will approve you. Now, most of us are sitting in here because we are church folks. Most of us are church folks. We've been in a church for a long time, and we say, gosh, I get that. I've had that. In fact, if you look in your passage in your Bible, it probably tells you this point. It says no other gospel is a heading. You've read that your whole life. Of course there's no other gospel out there. That's how I got in. That's how I became a Christian. And I'm not, I'm not moving away from that. I'm not going to another gospel. I'm not, I'm not going to become a Muslim. I'm not going to run away to someone else's wife. I'm not going to do those kinds of things. I'm not going to, as I become a student in college, become a naturalistic, evolutionary person. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to become an atheist. So what's the big deal? What's the big deal of no other gospel? I get that. I understand that. That's why I'm in church. Here's the big deal. When Abraham Lincoln was a young man, he was plowing behind a mule that had a horse fly on its rump. Okay? His brother comes along, sees the biting insect chomping away on the horse. So he flicks it away. What'd you do that for? Demanded Lincoln. That's the only thing that made him go. Right? What Paul is getting at in no other gospel, he's getting at the root and the heart of the Christian. The Christian, what makes you go? 
In verse 10, we get a a spiritual x-ray of what made the Galatian people go. In verse 10, we get a spiritual x-ray that reveals their heart. See, in verse 10, we've got these folks that came from a megachurch in Jerusalem. And these folks became a self-appointed follow-up discipleship team. So if we were there around today, we'd call them a discipleship follow-up team in missions. And what they did is they went to the churches that Paul had planted, the ones we just heard about, and they went throughout all these churches and they were doing follow-up. And while they were doing follow-up, I mean, you would admire these folks. These are seriously committed folks. They traveled 1,200 miles on foot to do this. They traveled 600 miles by boat in open ocean to do this. I mean, these are the folks that would be in the missionary journals of the day. Phenomenal, rugged, seriously committed folks. And they did this all because of why? Why did they do it? Here's the horse fly. Look in verse 7. These seriously committed Christians, Paul calls troublemakers in verse 7. Here's the bite. Look at verse 7. They are distorting the gospel of Christ. That word distort literally means they are changing the DNA, the form, the substance of the gospel. And so we're saying, how do they do that? I mean, these are good church folks. These are committed, serious folks. How did they do this? And the answer is found in verse 10. They were seeking the approval of man over the approval of God. So in other words, it goes like this. This follow-up team wanted to make others go. They wanted to go to this, do follow-up to these folks in Galatia. They wanted these Christians to be serious. They wanted them to be committed. They wanted them to be, take charge, impactful Christians in the world. They wanted their lives to be on the cutting edge of what it looks like to be a Christian and be an impactful Christian. And the way they were trying to make the Christians go in Galatia, the trade, they tried to get them to do it is they wanted them to keep and perform certain spiritual standards particularly circumcision and keeping the law. That was what was driving them. So the follow-up team's gospel was spiritual performance and achievement, not great grace. And in verse 10, we figure out why they were so committed to their performance. In verse 10, we find out the reason why. It's kind of like this. You have these surface commitments or objects up here. For the Galatian team, this follow-up team, they had circumcision. They were committed to it. They wanted the Galatians to... To have this standard as a part of who they were and identity as a Christian. This is what a committed Christian looks like. They could have done different ways of keeping the Sabbath. They could have done different ways of reading the Bible. They could have done different ways of keeping certain celebrations and feasts. They could have done all kinds of things, which I think they did do. But the big one was, is they wanted the folks that just became believers in order to become committed, serious Christians, they had to have circumcised, be circumcised. And Paul is saying, listen, that's circumstantial. That's an object, a surface object. But why they did it, what made them go, is that their deepest driving, longing, Savior and hope and trust and approval was for man's approval, not God's approval. You see that? So it kind of goes like this. Their heart mechanics would look something like this. They have a God-shaped hole in their soul 
for cosmic approval, cosmic meaning, cosmic sense of value and worth, cosmic forgiveness, cosmic well-being and life and happiness, right? And what they did is they made a decision that they're going to fill that hole with the approval of others. Now, when they look at the approval of others, it'd be something like the approval of my family, my friends, my church, my department, my professional peers, the particular group I'm with, whatever it is, the way I'm going to get that is through these surface objects. The way I'm going to get it is through being right in my law-keeping, particular circumcision. The way I'm going to get it is through a successful career. The way I'm going to get it is to talk bad about so-and-so because they talk bad about so-and-so. And I need their approval to be alive, to be somebody, to be visible. I'm going to get their approval through lying so I don't look bad. I'm going to get their approval by having perfect children. And Paul is saying to them, and as he says to us, there is no other gospel. The approval of others will not save you, is what he's saying. It will not. The approval of others cannot forgive you. The approval of others cannot affirm you. The approval of others cannot make you visible, justify somebody. It can't. There's no other gospel. Where else are you going to go? Now, how do you put your heart's allegiance, your heart's trust, your heart's hope, your heart's sense of deep cosmic approval, how do you put it in the real gospel? How do you do that? Or how do you do this? How do you move, push off your heart, push it away from pursuing the approval of others as your good news? In life. How do you do that? You become aware that you're doing that, but you don't know what to do or how to do it. What do you do? I want you to look at verse 10 again and here find see if you can find the answer. Look very, very closely. It's staring right at you. For I am now seeking. For am I now seeking the approval of man or am I seeking the approval of, of God? Do you see the solution? The solution is found in the approval of God. In other words, God's approval is the only thing that reaches the bottom of your soul and fills up the God-shaped hole to overflowing. Only God's approval makes you visible, makes you somebody, justifies you. Only God's approval forgives you and gives you cosmic hope and meaning and happiness. So how do you get it? How do you get God's approval? One of my favorite lines in my favorite Western tombstone is one of my favorite characters who does the favorite line in my favorite western called Tombstone. His name's Wyatt Earp. And Wyatt Earp is observing a bully who's threatening and abusing all within earshot. And he's observing this bully finally had enough and so he wants to teach this bully a lesson. And he severely teaches this bully a lesson. Right? And while he's given this lesson, 
while the bully is taking this lesson, my hero in this movie, in my favorite Western, says the favorite line. Are you just going to stand there and bleed? Are you just going to stand there and bleed? To gain God's approval for you, for deeply flawed, deeply messed up people, for people who are prone in their deepest hope to trust in the approval of others. To gain God's approval, Jesus stood there and bled. And he stood there and he bled till every last drop of the disapproval of God was spent on him at the cross. Jesus stood there bleeding under the unimaginable disapproval of God so that deeply flawed, messed up people could stand there under the approval of God. So you can stand in the light and the life in the visibleness and the somebodyness and the justifyingness of God's approval because someone loved you enough to take your place and take all the flaws and the messed upness and the proneness to the approval of others and bear the whole weight and agony of God's disapproval on him. So you get approval. Brothers and sisters, if we get that, that will make you go. If you realize that through the costly grace of Jesus, you right now, whether this is your first time in church or whether you're a missionary and you've been one for 10 years, when you rest and trust in the costly grace of Jesus, you got God's approval. Period. Because one man was willing to stand there and bleed and not remove himself until every last drop of disapproval was spent. All right. You become visible. You become somebody. You become justified only by God's approval. And God's approval is made real to you only by the costly grace of another. Amen? Amen.